I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, and more. The handler one day told her this whole thing about how they've been terraforming on Mars, and they're building a colony, and they're recruiting specific people of specific bloodlines and specific talents and skill sets to go onto the planet. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Lauren. Mike. So we host a podcast for Wired called Gadget Lab. We do. We do. (laughs) Yes, that is correct. (laughs) Tell the good people some more about it. Well, I think the good people should definitely tune in every week because they get to hear me roasting you. Hey, now. All right. No, really what Gadget Lab is, is Mike and I tackling the biggest questions in the world of technology. I like to think of it as the best of Wired's journalism, but in audio form. We cover the big news of the week in tech land, but we also offer our expert analyses and opinions on all things consumer tech, whether that's mobile apps, hardware, startups, cryptocurrency. Mike, what's been a recent highlight episode for you? We did a deep dive on the group behind the massive Okta hack. We Mm -hmm. also had a great conversation about Web3 and the metaverse. What stands out for you? Never metaverse you didn't like. (laughs) (laughs) I really enjoyed our recent podcast about Peloton. Um, And recently, the legendary tech journalist Kara Swisher joined us to talk all about Elon Musk and the future of Twitter. So I guess we should tell people how they can listen to our pod. We release a new episode of Gadget Lab every week, and you can listen and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you pod. Today's interview is with Adam Dell, the CEO of Domain Money. Uh, Adam is also the brother of Michael Dell, who built the famous computer company, Dell Technologies. Uh, Previous to Domain Money, Adam built a company called Message One, sold it to Dell Computers for $155 million. He started Clarity Money, which was sold for $100 million to Goldman Sachs, and where he spent a few years at Goldman building the product known as Marcus, which is their consumer-facing product. We talked a little bit about the growth of Marcus and what their strategy is at Goldman. Obviously, he's no longer at Goldman. So we moved on to chat about domain money and specifically how young people manage money, their portfolio strategy, how they learn about managing money, the graduation from randomly managing your money to when you're around 35 or 45, having a more systematic approach. And Domains Money's mission is to help people, particularly young people, manage money better. So hope you enjoy this conversation and you learn something as much as I did. We talked about higher level macroeconomics and market trends later in the conversation, but in the beginning, it was all about domain money. Hope you enjoy. Here is Adam Dell. All right, Adam, I'm excited to be chatting with you. Uh, I was really looking forward to this conversation. You've done a lot in payments, and I really appreciate your background having both started a company and then worked at Goldman Sachs. Uh, so you get a vantage point of both building, selling, and then working inside a bigger company. I'd love to just start with domain money. Um, what was the inspiration after you left Goldman to start domain? I mean, I guess, first off, did you were you excited to jump in and start another company? Or was this kind of a, a like a real big problem that you just felt compelled? Like, what was your emotional disposition after leaving Goldman to to then jump back into it again? Well, I've started five companies over the course of my career. 
Um, I guess I'm a little addicted to it. Um, you know, when I left Goldman, um, I had, um, you know, a, a whole bunch of ideas in my head about uh, things that are still yet to be built in financial services. Um, and I still believe that to be true. Um, you have, you know, a huge um, monolithic uh, group of companies, Fidelity, Vanguard, Schwab, Goldman, Morgan Stanley, um, B of A, Chip Morgan Chase, that really um, have not meaningfully innovated um, in the last 10 or 15 years. And um, there's a very clear shift among millennials and uh, uh, younger people who don't want to sign up for their parents' bank. Um, and it's obviously broader than banking. Um, it's uh, investing. It's uh, alternative investment uh, assets. Um, and so there's just a lot of opportunity in financial services. And that's really what, what drove me to start another company. Um, I should say that of all the large monolithic companies that I mentioned, um, uh, Goldman Sachs does stand uh, alone in the degree to which they've innovated with Marcus. Uh, and that's not just because I'm biased having been there and built those products. Uh, it really is a very unique situation where you have a 150-year-old um, uh, well-established financial institution that's incredibly well-respected that had no consumer business moving into consumer um, in a very meaningful and effective way, um, purely digital, leveraging partnerships like the Apple card. Uh, and so uh, I really enjoyed my time at Goldman and walked away highly impressed by the uh, tenacity and speed with which Goldman has been able to enter the consumer market. What are their internal metrics for success on on Marcus? From from the external, I, I saw some press around them just throwing, I think, at a loss of around 1.6 or somewhere in that range, billion dollars, which is more than any company I think it could sustain if they're operating independently. Do they look at this as like a Trojan horse on acquisition for bigger deals? Or does this somehow make sense given their holistic business model? You know, Goldman has a very long-term view of the consumer opportunity. Um, and so while that seems like a large number in aggregate, if you sort of parse that number out and you look at the um, individual ingredients that have gone into building the Marcus ecosystem of services and offerings, it's not as scary of a number. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, I think they view uh, aggregating consumer deposits as a very good business and strategically very valuable to their broader, broader business of deploying capital. Mm. And the majority, I know Goldman gets thrown around a lot, but for people not working in banking, how, what, are, what are they primarily focused on doing? 
I mean, just from a simple perspective, what what is Goldman better at everyone else and what is their core business? You talking about on the consumer side? I guess just from a total, like Goldman Sachs, the thing that they, their bread and butter is, is what? Well, I mean, Goldman Sachs is a multinational uh, company with many billions of dollars in revenue in, um, you know, investment banking and proprietary trading, advisory. Uh, so, you know, they have mm. uh, many lines of business and are almost always number one in market share in each one of those uh, lines of business. The consumer opportunity is a wholly new uh, venture for them. And within that vertical, the offering is to offer uh, low-cost personal loans, uh, to offer high-yield savings accounts, to offer credit cards through partnerships like the Apple Card uh, and their relationship with GM, um, to offer high-yield deposits uh, through their uh, savings account, to offer access to uh, low-cost ETF investing through Marcus Invest. Uh, so that that makes up the bulk of the the consumer offer. Yeah, I think of, I mean, this, maybe I'm completely wrong in this or biased. I can only speak from a consumer standpoint, having used Marcus. It felt like very simple experience, which is by design, I'm sure. And it felt a little bit like what's new here. You know, I can put money in, I can get an interest rate. They are often great interest rates, which I think is obviously very attractive, although questionable if there's a unique enough differentiation to sustain that or whether there's just pump money in to grow demand and then build on innovation or products later. But it felt like a little bit late to the game. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to criticize them without knowing, you know, what their long-term strategy is for sure. But I, I, but this is where I was like seeing what you're doing with domain money and just philosophically taking a stance that we're going to unlock new channels of information by scraping, you know, Twitter with your signal product or social in general, whether it's uncovering new information that traders can use to make trades. That's exciting. That's new. That's interesting. That that reveals new market opportunity for liquidity and intelligent trading. But to just offer trading to just offer a savings account with high interest and then loans with low interest. It's like, it kind of felt like we've already kind of crossed that milestones to some degree. I don't know. Maybe that's impartial why you jumped into this new thing. I don't know if any of that resonates. Well, I mean, I think that Goldman's opportunity in consumer is enormous. Um, it's hard to overstate the power of that brand. Uh, uh -huh in engendering trust, um, confidence, and expertise in financial matters. Um, there are people who are proud to be a um, borrower from Goldman Sachs. Really? Uh, yeah. A borrower. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I guess. And, and so it gives you a sense of how powerful that brand is. But Yeah. It must skew uh, by generations. Or more, so I can't really, can't really yeah. speak to, uh, to their current thinking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, tell me if this is the this is kind of the insight you have with domain money. I, I, I'm curious just to mirror it. So 
you say, let's create a platform where people can both uh, trade equities in the traditional markets and also trade crypto in one platform and then give them tools and insights to make uh, tr to make trades and have just insights on trading that they wouldn't have otherwise. Because even as even as as new as it is to say one trading platform to access both crypto and equities, it is also a very clear bullseye for a lot of other companies. So I would imagine that's going to become fairly table stakes at a certain point. Um, I don't think we're there yet. It seems like a lot of companies I talk to are are headed that direction. And then it's going to be so. Give me your reflection on this, but I, I sort of see we're moving to a place where all trading and access to all markets are available 24-7 or as close to it as possible. And the user experiences are simple and easy to use. And that's, that's baseline. And then it becomes a differentiation across companies based on the pipelines and access to information to make trades. So maybe you see other traders, you could see their trades, or you could access unique pipelines of information. Is this the kind of evolution of productization in fintech that you're seeing or is, or do you see it slightly differently? Well, you know, what I would say is the, you know, our 1.0 product um, was very much about uh, giving access to multiple asset classes on a single platform. Where we're heading from a vision standpoint is to really offer a more holistic financial services platform um, to consumers. You know, as I look at the investment landscape, um, you know, you are, as a consumer, inundated by Delity, Schwab, E-Trade, Coinbase, Robinhood, Acorn, Stash, Personal Capital, Wealthfront, Betterment. There's an enormous number of competitors out there and yet, if you really dive into the specifics of the value proposition that is available to, let's just take, for example, a 29-year-old who makes $100,000 a year, okay? What does that individual do with their money? Do they try to navigate Robinhood? Do they try to navigate Coinbase? Do they call up somebody at Fidelity and ask them what to do? Do they talk to their friends? Do they go on YouTube? Do they go on Twitter? Do they, do they ask their parents? Well, the answer to that question is yes, they do all of those things. And what they end up with is sort of a kludgy system for navigating and managing their money. And we've done a bunch of consumer research um, 20, 25, 25, 30, all the way up to basically 55. And what's really interesting about that research is that when you're 35, you have a plan. You've come to some system that you've cobbled together through those sources of inquiry and questions you've asked to your parents and your friends and your Fidelity guy and your Coinbase buddies or whatever. And you've formulated a, a system, and it's actually pretty bad. It's not well con constructed or conceived. It's really very ad hoc. By the time you're 45, you've actually evolved that system to work pretty well because you've sort of learned from all the mistakes that you've made along the way. So it strikes me that there's a real opportunity for um, 
a holistic financial plan for that 27-year-old, that 29-year-old who's not drowning in student debt, who has, um, you know, uh, money to save each month and has that fundamental question, what should I do with it? And rather than cobble together uh, a bunch of different inputs that yield a suboptimal plan, we think there's an opportunity to to help that customer um, in a more holistic way. And so that's kind of where we're headed. I have two thoughts on this that, that I want to hear your reaction to. One is that I have this intuitive sense, which is just picked up from my anecdotal experience, that if there's a playbook that says this is how you should manage and this is where you should put it, and that's advertised to everyone, then it's probably not... It's, it's, if everyone were to do the same thing with their money, then there'd be a lot of opportunities missed. And so I, on some level, I think there's like, if you, I almost picture this from a high level market perspective, what would be the best allocation of capital for the market? It would probably be people specializing in investments uh, that they have some domain expertise, right? They can do diligence on these investments. They can make the correct investment decisions. So companies and projects and people that deserve capital and can return value, end up getting funded. Then there's people who are completely passive and they're like wealth front, betterment. I don't want to think about it. And that just kind of kind of algorithmically, at least branding wise, distributes that in the market in the best way possible, according to historical returns and maybe other things. Uh, is there other, are there other buckets? Like I think of active management where I'm putting in five hours, maybe up, maybe up to full time. Full time is probably a different story, but maybe five hours is kind of the middle ground per week of active management versus I'm not putting in anything and I just want this. I just want to save my money and make good, solid returns, risk-free. I mean, do you, do you, see, do you see consumers falling into these general buckets of like one to a couple hours per week versus no time versus actively? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good way to think about it. Um, you know, the rise of the active investor sort of ebbs and flows with the uh, free time and free money. That's totally um, And so, you know, most most people don't have the time or the inclination to be active investors. I think it's a very small subset of people who are active investors across the population. and you know, in addition, uh, you know, only about 1% of active investors outperform the market. So, you know, the math, mm. uh, the odds are kind of against you um, in the active versus passive, you know, matrix. Now, I'm not saying that some people who aren't into active investing and studying the market, studying companies shouldn't do that. They absolutely should. But there are a lot of people for whom that's an overwhelming proposition. And they would rather rely on an algorithmic approach or a you know market market based approach to investing where they just they don't try to beat the market, they buy the market. But that's just one piece of a financial picture that a individual has to contend with, right? They have cash, they have their retirement planning, they have their goals around their home, their car, their uh, their tax opportunities, and they've got to figure all that out. And, you know, I, 
I would venture to guess that most Betterment customers don't get that from them. Um, and certainly you don't get it from uh, Wealthfront or Stash or Acorns or some of those other places. Um, now, um, personal capital does a pretty good job of providing a plan, but they're really focused on 45-year-olds who have $200,000 to put into the market. They're not focused on 27-year-olds who are just starting out on their journey. Um, and so, you know, uh, I think there's an opportunity there. When you say plan, uh, when I think of plan, that the first thing that comes to mind is what's been just taught in school, uh, you know, from a basic perspective, which is portfolio allocation distribution. You know, think of high risk capital, medium, low, and then you put that in accordance with where, you know, high risk stocks, low risk stocks, bonds, that, that sort of thing. Is that how you're thinking of plan or, or do you have a different definition of it? Well, I think of plan uh, holistically, which is, okay, you know, very few people wake up in the morning and say, I want to, um, you know, have a well-diversified portfolio across multiple asset classes. They wake up and they say, I really want to buy a house. I really want to plan for a baby. I really want to um, make sure that I'm set up for retirement, right? Those are the things that motivate people. You know, asset allocations and optimal risk, um, you know, sharp ratios are not the things that people wake up every morning and think about. And so when I think about plan, I think about those life goals, um, you know, you're sitting in front of a Bloomberg terminal, you're trading all day, and you're you're an active investor. You know, you know, average, highly intelligent individual working in Cincinnati, making $120,000 a year, who is 31 years old and engaged to be married, excited about having children in the next couple of, ye of years, their mindset and their attention is elsewhere. Mm. And so how do we serve that person well? I want to take a, a, a brief aside, Adam. I'm really curious. My intuition is that you're the type of person that does a lot of homework up front before diving in. And when you did this research, the consumer base is not straightforward. You know, you're not building a simple SaaS product or a simple widget that you're selling to solve a simple problem. As you alluded to or said explicitly, people go through a whole variety of knowledge acquisition sources. When you did your research, how did you go about it tactically? Did you do it grassroots style, asking friends and family? Did you hire a company, buy industry reports? Like what, what did you, uh, how did you actually go about gathering all the research that you used to form the business model? If you own crypto and leave it on the exchange where you bought it, like Coinbase, that is a mistake. We've heard the news lately. Exchanges closed, accounts frozen. We're learning the hard way that crypto on exchanges is not really in your control. So what can you do about it? Well, you can get a crypto wallet and control the crypto yourself. And that's why today's show is sponsored by ZenGo. These guys realize that storing Bitcoin and storing crypto yourself can be difficult. It's risky to keep private keys. 
they realized this and said there's got to be a better way. So they created a crypto wallet that is fully recoverable. So say goodbye to lost Bitcoins. And the security of this wallet is incredible. It's a hacker's worst nightmare. They use a three-factor authentication, including 3D biometrics, so no one can access your wallet except for you. And Zengo realizes that at different levels of the crypto journey, you have different needs. So they offer 27 support and have real people that are available to contact directly within the app. They have a bunch of different coins, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tezos, and more, and they have all sorts of NFTs available as well. So now for the first time, you can keep your crypto safe with the same tools that the big guys have used for years. Download Zengo, that's Z-E-N-G-O, and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's $20 back for your first purchase of $200 or more. Use code ATC and check out Zengo. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the most fundamental thing we've done is just talk to customers and listen. Um, and, you know, we heard over and over again um, that question, which is, what do I do with my money? Um, you know, and I've heard that question. Um, and been asked that question more times than I can can yeah. count. Yeah. Uh, because people don't know. And you know, that's a real problem, right? Uh, that people need solve. Um but you know, to answer your question, we've done um uh, many hundreds of uh, customer interviews. We've sat down with different cohorts of, of people based on age, income, uh, risk appetite. Are they interested in crypto? Are they interested in real estate? Are they interested in, you know, other kinds of alternative assets, art, et cetera? Um, you know, we've, we've done a lot of research and, you know, you alluded to something that um, this sort of interesting point, which is if everybody's doing the same thing, then how do you get any, any, any yield or that sort of outperforms others? And, you know, the, the reality is that I think most people are under the impression that they're not doing it right, right? That whatever it is that they've cobbled together around their money, the one thing they do know is that they're not optimized <laughs> their financial situation. Yeah. Yeah. They just, they're like, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I went on YouTube. I went on Reddit. I read some stuff. I talked to my friends, but I just know I'm not doing this right. And, you know, that, that's a real, that's a real problem that, that I think we, we can try to solve for people. Now it's not going to be easy because, you know, it's a complex and emotionally wrought problem. Uh, money is extremely emotional. People are highly irrational about it. Um, and their cognitive load is quickly reached. And most people would rather drink a beer than think about their money. And so we've got to try to solve for consumers that problem in a way that allows them to digest bits of it such that it is understandable and make progress along the way rather than like, okay, well, 
here's everything. You got to figure this out. You mm-hmm. do that to somebody and their, their brain taps out and they just check out and inertia takes over. So how do you answer the question? So people ask you all the time, how do you answer? Well, it, it, it requires some information. Um, what are your goals? What is your current financial situation? And what is your risk appetite? Those are sort of the three fundamental inputs, right? So an individual who um, has debt and has insecurity around their income is a very different set of answers than if you have no debt, you have a consistent paycheck, and you are willing to take risk at a stage in your life where risk makes sense. So it really depends on the inputs. But, you know, let's just take a prototypical example of um, you're 32, you make $128,000 a year. You know, we'll go back to our example. You're engaged, you have no children, but you're going to get married. Uh, you know, what should you do? Well, the first thing you should do is make sure that you have um, a foundation, right? Which is if I lose my job, I've got enough runway to sort of withstand any interruption in my income stream. The next thing you should do is you should make sure that you're taking advantage of all the tax opportunities available to you in your 401k, your IRA, backdoor Roth that you're eligible or not eligible, uh, and max all that out. The third thing you should do is you should consistently invest 20% of your paycheck each month. Invest, save, I'm sort of using those synonymously, but you know, if you're going to save it, put in a high yield savings account. If you're going to invest it, invest it in a, you know, very safe market neutral kind of portfolio. And then with a small percentage of your investable assets, whether it's 2% or 5%, you know, that's sort of up to you. Go nuts. Buy a racehorse, mm-hmm. invest in crypto, invest in real estate. Whatever the hell you want to do, knock yourself, have fun. Do things that are interesting and compelling to you from an investment standpoint. That is the highest probability outcome path to financial freedom, right? Most people aren't going to be entrepreneurs who make hundreds of millions of dollars. Most people are going to have very nice, successful careers where they work at a company and then go work at another company and they retire and they have grandchildren and they have a perfectly nice life. And that's great, right? For a lot of people, that's kind of, you know, a fantastic American dream realized. The highest probability outcome to achieve that is to do a version of what I just described. Mm. So that's what you should do with your mind. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good answer. Honestly. Um, do you think of any particular, do any particular rules of thumb come to mind when I think of like a home purchasing, for example, uh, there's often the debt to income ratio that gets thrown around and people say, how much of a house can I afford? It's like, well, I think I forget that there's something like 0.3 debt to income ratio, I, I think is like recognized as kind of an average or higher, high amount. Are there certain ratios or rules of thumb that people would keep in mind as as it correlates to debt 
income savings, purchasing of a large either property or a, a car or something? Yeah. So a, a, a very good rule of thumb is the 50-30-20 rule, which is you should spend 50% of your paycheck on things you need, like rent and bills. You should spend 30% of it on stuff you want, like entertainment, travel, and you should save and invest 20% of it each month. And that 20% should go into the kind of market neutral portfolio I described. And then of that 20%, you know, 5% of that or 3% of that, depending on your risk tolerance, you can put into riskier things. Um, and so the question of when you buy a house um, is really a function of how much you're able to save toward that goal relative to your, your other priorities, right? And so if having a baby is more important to an individual than uh, buying a home and having a baby comes with some expenses that you need to prepare for, then, you know, you sort of need to think about those priorities. Um, but, you know, each one of those goals is uh, really what dictates how you define the priorities and where you put your money each month. There's a really um, smart guy um, that uh, named Joe Durand that that runs a company called United Capital that Goldman Sachs bought, uh, and it really was a very strategic acquisition for Goldman. And Joe rolled up a bunch of RIAs. You follow me? Just give it RIAs a retirement investment account. Yeah, well, it's a it's a it's a financial advisor um, that helps you know wealthier people figure out what to do with their money, mm -hmm. right? It's people who have a couple million dollars in assets. They're usually in their forties and fifties, and they, you know, they own a business. They they're a doctor at a large practice, whatever it is. They've amassed real assets, and they need somebody to really sit down with them and think through trusts and states and 529 plans and, you know, all the things that come with a much more complicated financial picture for somebody who's further along in their life. Wills and estates, all, all that sort of stuff. And what Joe figured out, which is really an, a brilliant insight, and it sort of goes back to what I said earlier, which is that when you sit down with somebody, what Joe trained his advisors to do is to communicate to the client in life terms, not financial terms. What do you, what do you want to do when you retire? You want to travel? You want to buy a second home? Do you want to sell your primary residence and move to a smaller place and, you know, do you know that? What are your goals? What are your life goals? And what he's figured out was that when you talk to a client in those terms, what happens when you leave is that the, the non-financial spouse, there's usually a financial spouse and a non-financial spouse in a couple, right? There's mm -hmm. one person, you know, the man's like, I just want to live and have fun. And the, and the, the wife is like, no, we, we need to be responsible or vice versa or whatever the gender rules are. It doesn't matter, but you get my point. One of those people is more financially focused than the other. But what he figured out was that when you talk to people about life terms, life goals, they're much more open and clear about what their priorities are. 
you know, should you um, have a 529 plan or should you max out your 401k or should you do both or a combination? To most people, that's gobbledygook. But I want to be able to travel when I retire is a concept that no one is unable to conceptualize and internalize and decide for themselves, is that one of my goals and priorities? And so what he built was a mechanism that forced people to stack rank their priorities. And in doing so, it defined how their savings and assets should be allocated and spent as they retire. And to me, that insight is very powerful because what it makes clear is that you need to meet people at their emotional level. Um, and I'm not talking about talking down to people or mm -hmm. dumbing it down or making it simplistic. I'm talking about addressing the fundamental things they actually care about because nobody cares about the mechanics of a 401k. What people care about is that I can pay less taxes, which means I get to keep more money, which means I'm going to have more money when I retire, right? Mm -hmm. You care about that. You don't care about the mechanics of a 401k. And so those kinds of um, approaches, I think, are critical to ensuring that we do a good job of communicating consumers in ways that they, they understand and, and, and will respond to. Mm. So what do you, what do you do differently? So if I if you're thinking about it from we've kind of talked about folks that are you know running a, a practice or have a business and they want to retire by vote etc. What about folks who are more curious? They they want to take it up to the next level. They're like say in your shoes, right? They're running a company. They're maybe fintech company. They're not thinking about their own portfolio day to day, but they're in the world of business, maybe even finance. And, and, and so they're not scared or even they, they want to know, like, tell me what the 529 is exactly. They'll, they'll go right in and read the fine text. They're, they're interested to know the mechanics of portfolio allocation and they're, they're quantitatively minded, intelligent, curious people. What, what do they, what are, maybe you use you for an example or folks in your shoes, how would they approach this uh, in contrast to what you just described? Yeah, well, there there are offerings out there that focus on that demographic. Um, Compound is a, a startup out there that really focuses on entrepreneurs um, and people who have had meaningful liquidity events by being at a startup and are facing the question, what do I do now? Mm. Right. I, I have a large nest egg that I've um, I've earned. It's sitting somewhere. How do I allocate it? What do I do with it? Um, how do I do that in a thoughtful way? And so that's a very specific problem set um, that is quite real and, and, and um, very addressable. Uh, and there are companies, like I mentioned, uh, out there who are focused on that. Um, that's not the problem we're trying to solve. The problem we're trying to solve is I live in Cincinnati. I'm 29 years old. I make $128,000 a year. I want to do the smart thing around my money and I want to do it holistically. What do I do? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that individual recognizes tapping around on Coinbase or Robinhood or E-Trade 
is not going to get them there. And similarly, um, betterment's not going to get them there because it's fundamentally um, what you're getting is a robo. Um, and your life is more complex and more interesting than a robo. Um, and so we're trying to trying to address that. How we do that, <laughs> you'll have to wait and see. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, what do you? What's your thoughts on the influence of the market? So we've just gone through kind of a vicious, uh, particularly crypto and NFT world, uh, like a wild up and down, where there was a period of time, maybe six months or so, where the market was crazy. The U.S. is printing tons of money. It was. It felt very volatile. Things certainly dropped a lot in in value. You could say the market crashed. There's some some people I listen to that would say, "Oh, this is just another bubble. You know, this has happened before. This is very predictable. Humans go through this this process over and over." My intuition is that's um, it's it's correct directionally, but it's missing the point that it's not ideal. That we just kind of accept these explosive bubbles and crashes as like, oh, that's just how markets work. And to me, it feels very inefficient in, in a simple sense, but also like kind of unnecessarily destructive. And and I wonder, you know, as as good as you can allocate money in your portfolio, it, it seems like you have to at least become aware of, it would behoove people to become aware of market conditions, look for like clear signals in the market, maybe follow some people who are, you know, broadcasting ideas that communicate simple ideas on real estate, on overall liquidity in the market. Like when the federal government prints trillions and trillions of dollars, there's simple math to show that prices are going to go up because there's more currency in the system. We talk about inflation, so on and so forth. But there's a just like the frustration that we were talking about on people's cluelessness as to where to put their money, there there also is kind of a an urgency that I'm sensing across particularly the younger generation, maybe like 20 to 40-ish, that they're trying to parse out, like, what are the signals here? Like, if the U.S. government just prints uh, all this money and then they say, oh, it's going to be fine. There's an increasing sense that institutions, particularly state institutions, the Federal Reserve, the White House, all the speakers there, they're not they're they're covering the truth. They're they're and they're in a sense they're they're trying to create a narrative that like it's all good. And people intuitively sense it's not all good. And and a lot of people are scrambling trying to figure out macroeconomics. And so I think you see a lot of increase in popularity of people on YouTube and Twitter and elsewhere, talking heads that are you know, smart people, but they're the ones that people are kind of beaming to, to say, let's figure this out. Let's understand the economics of the system. So I, you know, people at the end of the day feel like th they are responsible, whether they use domain money, manage it themselves, whatever they do, like it's ultimately their decision. And to be asleep at the wheel is to be just trusting whatever the institutions say, and then you go down with the ship. So I, I'm curious your reaction to that. If, if you I disagree with anything I said or uh, see it as something important that people pay attention to understanding high level economics as part of a investment strategy and thinking about managed wealth, regardless of how much they are managing. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, well, uh, there's a lot in that. Mm-hmm. So I could try to unpack it for you. Um, you know, what I would say is that, you know, the way our economy works is that uh, we have these boom and bust cycles. That's just the nature of how our economic system works in the United States. The, uh, you know, the, the Fed tries to mitigate those boom and busts uh, by introducing policies that, you know, attempt to tamper down the exuberance and then, and then buoy the, uh, the despair when busts occur. Um, and they often overshoot in either direction by a meaningful margin. And the best guesstimates are that the, uh, you know, the, the PPP money was three times more than it needed to be. Um, and that they could have pumped in far less into the economy and still allowed the, you know, disruption caused by the pandemic to not have long-term uh, lasting impact on our GDP or Definitely. our growth prospects. But that's kind of um, a good recent example of the um, lack of precision that exists in economic modeling in a highly complex, highly volatile system called the U.S. economy, mm-hmm. which is obviously tied to the global economy and, right, so it's even more complex. So, so it's hard to get it right. Um, but that inherent nature of boom and busts, while difficult to ride on any given day, especially when it's going down, is actually quite efficient at allocating capital. Right, there is no better system in the world for um, return on investment than the chaotic scramble of, um, you know, operating margin. Uh. <laughs> and so, as every individual company and enterprise seeks to carve out some niche for themselves in the ecosystem of our of our our economy. The search for operating margin and the investment required to enter a new market or launch a new product or try a new service that will ultimately yield some operating margin is incredibly efficient. And the reward system of uh, investing capital, uh, being an investor, owning equity, and having uh, some enterprise, um, you know, profit and 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 grow and work and reaping the rewards of that investment is incredibly efficient. And so, you know, I take the boom and bust nature of our economy, the lack of precision that exists in um, mitigating those ups and downs and, you know, sort of conclude like, well, you know, what, what do you want from me? Mm. <laughs> this is the best we can do. Um, there's, there's no better system in the world for economic 
growth than the U.S. market economy. And while it is imperfect um, uh, and frustrating, uh, it's still the best one ever devised by man. Do you think there's an analogy, an accurate analogy to say that 99% of people who try to manage uh, an active fund do worse than the market? I think you, you threw that set out earlier, which sounds right to me. Is there is there a true analogy to say that 99% of the time when the government tries to manage the monetary policies that it would be that it's going to do worse 99% of the time than if it were just to do nothing at all. So in a sense, like, could that, and could you carry out this example by saying if, if maybe if, and when we move to a cryptocurrency based monetary system that is like cryptographically secure and mathematically predetermined with a protocol that no one can control that, 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 like rooted monetary system will outperform the one where humans tinker at the wheel? Yeah, that's a fair question. And I, I can't answer it because it's an unknowable yet untested um, uh, hypothesis. Um, you know, I will say that, um, you know, strong central banks have played an important role in um, economic development um, for centuries. And I would not want to live in a world where there were not strong central banks. Um, you know, and, and I'm a proponent of crypto. Mm. Um, and so, you know, letting economies um, you know, spin out of control uh, without uh, silent government oversight, I think is probably um, not a great idea. Um, and if you think about the role of a central bank in providing, um, um, uh, credit, um, and being a lender of last resort to, um, um, fuel the financial system, which, you know, uh, requires access to the federal funds rate that the <laughs> government mm -hmm. offers large institutions. Without that, you'd have a very different kind of uh, financial system, which I don't think would be a better one. Now, the promise of crypto and having, you know, completely decentralized control, um, um, around a economic system that is an alternative to the fiat systems in various countries around the world, I'm a huge proponent of and believe in completely, particularly because there are many economies in the world where there are not strong central banks and their economic policies are incredibly um, uh, 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 poorly constructed. Mm. So, um, if I lived in Venezuela or if I lived in Mexico or if I lived in Guatemala or if I lived in uh, Sudan, I, I would want to have uh, access to an alternative monetary system. Um, and so, you know, I think the, 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 the promise of crypto to bring stability and predictability to uh, their monetary systems is enormously powerful. Um, 
and, and really the promise of crypto. Yeah, it's almost like what you're saying is there's a hierarchy of preferred systems. You have on the bottom, you have probably the the system of Venezuela, right, where you're just completely corrupt in the monetary system and massive hyperinflation. Then you have above that a like poorly operated uh, cap, uh, capitalistic system. And then you have a highly functional, efficient, intelligent, honest, uh, capitalistic system with central banks. And the question is like, which I think is a is an intelligent response is we don't know whether a highly efficient, honest, intelligent, capitalistic central bank system outperforms a decentralized protocol based uh, cryptocurrency based system. We'll fi we'll figure that out. But it also seems like if I'm tr charting the trends here, there's <laughs> there's an interesting website you should check out. It's called that. Uh, WTF happened in 1971. So 1971, the U.S. fiat currency detaches from the gold, uh, gold base, gold backed dollars, and it's like you can see these graphs. It's just it's it's amazing how many graphs there are. Everything from real estate to child, uh, children per household. It's like everything's just cruising along. 1971 happens, and poof, it just shoots up in a different direction, up or down. Uh, but it's it certainly had a major impact, and my. Suspicion is that when we detached from a physical reality of the monetary supply, and it's now just up to the politicians at the printing machine how much they want in in, in circulation, we're 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 inevitably moving towards a system where we're we're de we're going down on the hierarchy. Is that, that's my intuitive sense that if it's not backed by anything, then we have the um, the same emotional biases that happen to all the people that create boom and bust cycles that make all these mistakes in their portfolio management. They're the same people, human beings that are operating at the highest level of money printing. And it doesn't take, it's hard to get out of those systems. It's like a, it's like a black hole or a quicksand. Like once you kind of sink into hyperinflation, you know, Argentina, Venezuela, there's many countries that have gone in there and it's hard to get out. So it's like, I don't know. Yeah, well, um, you know, most most economists that I that I know that are intellectually honest, which uh, really requires that they have a level of um, 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 intellectual humility that many economists don't have, <laughs> um, um, but the ones that do have it recognize that we're in kind of uncharted territory. Yeah. Uh, particularly around the crypto stuff, but also as it relates to the U.S. dollar, because the central role of the dollar in the global economy is so singular. And as long as we are, from a monetary standpoint, just slightly better than a lot of other countries, we get nonlinear mm -hmm. benefits that exceed what we should get for our bad policy. In yep. other words, we don't get the same level of inflation. We don't get the same, um, you know, spikes in interest rates. We don't get the same uh, flight of capital. We don't get the same market jitteriness that you would get in other countries that aren't the foundation of the global economy, which the dollar is. And because of that position and because 
the United States has continued to be the source of enormous economic value creation, you know, intellectual property, Disney, Apple, Marvel, you know, pick your, pick your thing, um, crypto, Silicon Valley. And because there has been such an enormous growth in global wealth, which has inured to the benefit of the dollar, because where else are you going to put money? Uh, you know, if you have $100 million or $50 million or $5 million and you live in, you know, pick a country, some percentage of that money is going to end up in a U.S. market. And so that those three things have all fundamentally changed the dynamics of how the U.S. economy um, uh, is punished for poor economic monetary policy. And, and, and there's really no honest answer to that because it hasn't played out yet. Now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, if those dynamics are no longer in place, yes, there will be more of a rationalization of punishment against the dollar for bad policy. But right now, the strength of the dollar is pretty undeniable. If someone were to force you to make a decision here, uh, 20 years from now, what is the central, global central currency that people are using? The dollar. How about 50? 50 years. I mean, I'm a big, big fan of the United States. Yeah, yeah. I think that we have a good system here. Um, so, um, you know, I, I don't, I, I, I don't, I think that, you know, our hegemony has certainly peaked, mm. but it's not over. And our, our, our political power, our military power, while they may not be where they were, they're still at the top. And our economic power is, 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 is undeniable, even in the face of, you know, an emerging, uh, you know, let's forgive China for all its sort of current growth problems. And it's the problems with its, its demographics and not having enough young people, you know, all the, you know, sort of fits and starts that India's had. Those two economies are just enormous and will continue to march forward and grow. But the United States will still um, have an incredibly important role because when was the last time China invented something that you were like, ooh, I really got to have that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right. Another concept zero to one. Are you familiar with Ray Dalio's book and, and YouTube series of the rise and fall of empires? Yeah, sure. It's an interesting perspective. I think it's probably directionally accurate. And like, there's an excitement level. It kind of swells up. You have peak performance, decreases over time. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's interesting to see. I certainly would, I'm per, certainly more um, apt to say that it becomes USD, BTC versus China. Like each of them pulling in different directions, like kind of a three-way battle for global global currency recognition maybe at a time it's like there's multiple simultaneously recognized well i think it's much more likely that there is a digital u.s dollar and a a uh, a, a digital chinese currency which mm -hmm. there, there are, is um i mean the, the united states is working on a digital dollar they've been working on it for some time there's a very robust set of research uh, and policy discussion going on in Washington about that. 
Um, it is going to happen. It will probably take five years. It will not have maybe 10 years. It will not have all the bells and whistles that everybody wants. Um, but it is a no-brainer, couple of trillion free dollars for the U.S. government if they issued a digital dollar because there are so many people in the world who would want to own mm. the dollar and can't get meaningful access to it, mm. including a number of the countries we mentioned. Mm. So, um, you know, if the U.S. issued a digital dollar and you could buy it anywhere on, in any market, uh, it would, it would inure a couple of trillion dollars of value to the U.S. economy. Yeah. Almost instantly. Yeah. I've heard the two biggest exports that America has is uh, currency and culture, which strike me as being true. Um, I think our biggest export is intellectual property, but, but, uh, but maybe the dollar figure. Yeah. Maybe you could argue like currency, culture, and company. Probably true. Yeah. 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 Uh, Adam, who, who have you learned the most about on these topics, either economists or, uh, just public intellectuals, people writing books, YouTube, Twitter, any particular people stand out to you? Well, I'm a huge, uh, uh, behavioral uh, economics fan. So Kahneman and Thaler and mm -hmm. uh, Dan Ariely, who was on, on one of our advisors at Clarity Money. And um, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm a huge student of um, all of that work um, and constantly fascinated by the irrational nature of how people behave, um, particularly around their money. Mm -hmm. um, those those are, 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 are very influential uh, people in my life. Um, you know, uh, Bill Gurley is one of the brightest people I've ever uh, met and, and fortunate to get to call him a friend and, and get to spend time with him. And he always pushes my brain to places that I wouldn't normally go and, and find him to be, uh, you know, just a, a great sounding board and uh, a, a really, really powerful thinker. Mm. Um, those yeah. would be on the top of my yeah, I like Bill. I like I like everyone you mentioned, particularly Dan O'Reilly has some really good case studies on experiments he's run, particularly on cheating. You know, I found that one one was like if uh, they, they gave people a test and then they said uh, at the end of the test, it said rate your own answers. And when they took the tests and they threw them away and they like scanned them on the way down, people on average cheat about 15 percent of the time, which is kind of kind of interesting. Yeah, he's a he's a fascinating guy, and of course, Bill Gurley. I wish Bill Gurley would write and do more talks. He just has such a unique vantage point from seeing all these deals, being on all these boards. I love the stuff that he puts out there. I just wish you'd do more of it. So next time you talk to him, hey, stay tuned. All right, all right, I'll hold you to it. Awesome, Adam. Congrats on the progress, man. This is a lot of fun. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.
Have you ever felt that your life has no meaning? Do you wake up in the morning dreading the day ahead? Do you feel lost? I'm Tanner Campbell, host of the podcast Practical Stoicism. Every Saturday morning, I explore the ancient texts of Stoicism and derive from them practical takeaways that anyone can implement to live a more contented and fulfilling life. Search your podcast listening app of choice for Practical Stoicism and join me each week to explore Stoicism practically and discover how it can help you live better.